Hi, my name is Wendy Weber. And my name is BJ Neal. Welcome to Nobody Chooses Homelessness. A podcast dedicated to changing the cultural narratives about homelessness and shedding light on how we can mobilize to be a part of the solution. In this podcast, we'll talk to everyday people, experts, entrepreneurs, and activists who are helping their unhoused neighbors find their way home again. We work for City Relief, a nonprofit organization dedicated to serving people facing extreme poverty and homelessness. City Relief shows up weekly as a mobile outreach offering people free meals, supplies, and connection to resources for housing, employment, and health care. More importantly, we offer people friendship, community, and belonging. We both have years of experience working systematically and on the ground to end homelessness. We believe that in order to end homelessness, it's going to take a holistic approach with people from all walks of life helping their neighbors in need. Mary Elizabeth is a director at the Grace and Mercy Foundation, where she joined in 2021 and has been learning from her colleagues and organizations that the foundation partners with since. She has her master's in social work and has experience working with various nonprofits and the New York City government. Throughout her professional experience working with individuals experiencing trauma and leading teams, she has been impressed with human resiliency and the ability to change. Mary Elizabeth lives in Harlem with her husband, Jeff, and son, John David. Hi, Mary Elizabeth. We're so glad you're here. Hi, Wendy. Hi, BJ. So why don't we start with your story and how you got to the place that you are today? Great. Well, I was born in South Alabama. My dad was a student at Auburn University and joined the Navy about six months after I was born. So I grew up moving on average of every 22 months. I really enjoyed that as a kid. As an adult, it's kind of weird because it's like, where am I from? Who knows? Um, New York's the longest place I've ever lived anywhere. And I really was able to see the world. And I think I had a, that gave me a great appreciation for the diversity of, of creation, but also God's kingdom. So everywhere we went, I was blessed to be raised in a Christian home. Everywhere we met, went, we went, we were in a different type of church. And so I really got to see how a lot of people love Jesus, but view scripture in a different way and, and prioritize different parts of God's creation or his kingdom. And I think that really made me open to working with people that I don't agree with, being in spaces that could be challenging, but also really gave me a passion for serving God's kingdom and specifically serving people in need. So I, I ended up after college teaching at a university in China. I taught oral English and I loved that, but knew that I didn't want to teach long term. And so I, I ended up back in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is where I went to college. And I was leading an after school program for girls that were kindergarten through third grade. And there was a little girl in my after-school program that was in therapeutic foster care. And we were, our program was hosted in a church fellowship hall. And so there was a kitchen there. And one day she really just had a meltdown and was verbally aggressive and ended up being physically aggressive and ended up in the kitchen and pulled a knife. The police had to be called. And it was really intense. And here I was, like my little liberal arts, like wanting to love Jesus in the world degree. And I'm like, I don't know what to do or or how to support this girl or the rest of the girls in this program. Yeah. 
And recognizing that that wasn't my job, actually, like I wasn't a therapeutic foster parent or a case manager, but I was really interested in that. I was really interested in how trauma impacts humans, how there's opportunity for healing and hope in those spaces and have a really high view of care for people. And for me, part of that was education. And so I went on to get my master's in social work and moved here with my husband and ended up working at a private homeless shelter for four years. And and that was really, really formative and kind of how I view the world, how I view people and how I view God's kingdom. This holiday season, we've set a tremendous goal of reaching 15,000 people in the New York and New Jersey area who are experiencing homelessness and extreme poverty. For $20, you can sponsor one person and give them access to a hot meal, supplies, and time with our life care counselors. To give now, click the link in the description of this podcast. Wow. Yeah, that is what I love about your story that you were just saying is that you experienced, you technically experienced some trauma there and that on the basis of the trauma you experience, you're witnessing this person's reaction to their trauma, right? That's giving you trauma. And then you're like, rather than running from it, rather than like, yeah, okay, I'm done with this, which is like really the normal person to respond. (laughs) <laughs> to see someone pulling out a knife, right? You're like, I want to understand why she pulled the knife out. And that right there, like, is really what makes Mary Elizabeth, during the time that I've known you, that's what makes you so brilliant because there is just this curiosity, this, this intelligence, and this just wanting to understand people not just simply on the basis of like just conversations simply, but like, no, I want to understand the deeper levels of why they're doing what they do. So right now in the, I would say probably human services community, there's a lot of talk about what people call housing first. I would love for you to just explain what housing first is, right? Maybe just talk about that first a little bit. And then coming from an organization, because you are that focused on shelters and restorative therapeutic approach before housing, what did you see that worked? Maybe even what did you see that didn't? Yeah, I I really appreciate that question because to me, it points to the complexity of of the problem of homelessness. And as a professional social worker in the field, that was one of the reasons why I really liked it. It was it was always new, always different. At the homeless shelter where I worked, we had 194 beds and there were 194 stories, 194 reasons why people walked through those doors. Yeah. And and so there's not a one-size-fits-all problem. There's not a one-size-fits-all solution to this really complex sure. problem. And so there are a variety of approaches. And I think, you know, something that I feel like we lose sometimes in this conversation is the recognition that all of these approaches are working toward providing the support that someone needs sure. to to be housed and to flourish. 
And and so I do want to say that there are a lot of good organizations that are doing a lot of really hard work in challenging spaces to be supportive to individuals that are on that journey. But I do think that housing first can be a, a bit of a misnomer because people think housing only. And so housing first truly is an approach to ending or addressing homelessness through providing housing with low low or no barriers. And so there are a lot of people that I'm sh- you both know them, I am sure, that are just really against or reticent to move into a shelter and that maybe they've had a bad experience. Maybe they've heard about a bad experience. Maybe they are just not interested in that. And so this model would say this person, what in order to to stop the homelessness part of their journey, they just need a house. And so let, let's get them in there. And typically that comes with wraparound services. And, and so the housing isn't contingent upon the services, but they are there to provide a supportive environment as that person works towards maintaining, maintaining their housed status. The, yes, the shelter that I worked in, the program that I worked for would say homelessness is a complex problem. And so let's do our best to address those complexities as someone is working towards stability that would set them up for success in housing. And I would say that both approaches have have challenges and both approaches have a lot of positives. And that as long as people have the have option, I think that's a good. And so I worked for a private shelter in a right to shelter city that whose 194 beds were filled every night. And I would tell people it's because Something is going on here that that has caused at least about 200 people to say, this is the choice that I would like to make. Yeah. This is the space that I want to be in. And so I think in the nonprofit or human services world, there's sometimes inherent competition over dollars. And so something or someone has to be better so that they get the, the contracts from the government or the money from the individual donors. But I think the world that we live in there's enough of the problem to go around and and that it's a it's a win for a, a guest, a client, an individual when they are able to speak to a human being and have choices offered to them. Absolutely. This podcast is sponsored by City Relief. We are a nonprofit dedicated to connecting people who are experiencing homelessness and poverty to food, clothing, and vital resources they need to survive. We show up week after week on New York City and New Jersey streets, regardless of the weather, providing meals and community to those who feel forgotten. We can only do this because of the generosity of everyday people like you who want to see a world where our homeless neighbors are cared for. To find out how you can give and make a real impact on homelessness, click the link in the description of this episode. So I know that one of the challenges with housing first is when what's lacking is wraparound services, as you said. And so from a clinical perspective, from your subject matter expertise, what does that look like when there's a housing first approach, but the wraparound services aren't present? What kind of, what kind of, what does that, how does that play out then for that person? I think that speaks to kind of the problem of, of homelessness. So the number one reason currently in New York City for homelessness is housing is housing cost 
And part of that is not having a social safety net that can catch you. And a social safety net is kind of, I don't know, another way to say community. And so for me, if I lost my job today, that would be devastating. I couldn't support myself indefinitely without income through work. But I have people in my life where if I had to, I could move back in with my family or or there are people in New York that could potentially support me. It would take a lot for me to end up in a space where I would be in a shelter. And and so I have and and that's a social safety net is something that everyone has. We just have different size social safety nets. And part of that size is like length of time and also personal choice. Like maybe I don't want to live with my mom. And if that's my only option, maybe the street is better or a shelter is better. And so when we're in spaces where community has been broken or we're dealing with physical illness or mental illness or being out of the workforce for significant periods of time, these skills break down and these challenges are exacerbated. And so wraparound services can really help support someone maintain the type of standard of living that they want. And so if I want to be in my own house, if I want to be in my own apartment, there are things that you have to be capable of doing your activity of daily living. And, and so those, support, those supportive services can really help set someone up for success to ensure that they're able to maintain that. So how do you think on the basis of everything that you've experienced, the teams you've led, the things that you've done, the stories that you've heard, how has your personal narrative surrounding homelessness shifted over your time? Yeah, I think it's it's probably done a 180. I think that, like many people, my picture of homelessness is what I see on the street. It's of people that either appear to be using drugs or actively using drugs or are not clean and unkept and making choices that I have a hard time understanding. It's hard for me to to imagine a world where I would choose something similar. But my experience working at a homeless shelter is that Everyone there was, A, doing the best they could with the skills that they had, and B, oftentimes 80% of our shelter was filled with people that were working, and that it's, it's that social safety net that's really small, but also financial insecurity. So in my time at the shelter, the minimum wage was bumped up to $15 an hour, But in order to rent an apartment in New York City, you needed to make at least $21 an hour. And so, you know, we talk about minimum wage versus living wage. We talk about social safety nets. And so I know there were quite a few people that ended up in the shelter because they were in illegal sublets. And so they had no protection when they lost their housing, either because they were forced eviction because the, the owner was found out. And they had to remove these illegal subletters. If you live in New York or New Jersey, or technically anywhere, and you'd like to volunteer with us, click on the link in the description of this episode. One story that will stick with me forever was because he was my age and he was, his mom had had some chronic illness and had died and died in debt. And so he did not have any sort of wealth that was passed along to him. But grief from that had to deal with his mom's estate 
And he was working at a kitchen and his someone that he worked with knew that he was living in a shelter and, and offered him a room in his apartment. And so this guy moved into the apartment, was so excited. I remember so distinctly, he was so excited to get out of the shelter. Yeah. So there was celebration there. And like a month later, he was back. And he said that the man that he was staying with propositioned him and said that he was going to. And so then this guy was like, well, I'm going to call the police. And the guy was like, fine, I'll tell them that you're not supposed to be here. This is my place, my house. You you have like essentially no rights, no, no sense of there's no way that you have any space for a recourse. And so he just felt so vulnerable and so taken advantage of and so not safe that that it, it's just you hear these stories over and over again that it's not people that are making poor choices. It's people with limited options. And one different. Great. Yeah. Great. Hey, you. Yes, you, listener. Have you ever been walking down the street? And someone who appeared unhoused approached you and asked for money? Or do you ever walk to the train in the morning and see someone holding a sign asking for help? What do you do? Well, don't worry. We are here to help. Click the link in the description of this episode for a quick, easy-to-use guide packed with helpful tips for how to engage with your neighbors experiencing homelessness.